0: seated turn to me in your bibles to Matthew chapter 22 Matthew 22 verses 41 to 46 is our text for today <clears throat> This is the word of the Lord. God is its ultimate author, even though Matthew was uh, its human author. It's both God's words and Matthew's words. Uh, But you need to listen to it carefully because it's God's words. Um, So, this is the word of the Lord, starting in verse 41 of Matthew's Gospel. Uh, This is the 22nd chapter. Now... While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, Then how does David, in the Spirit, call him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord... Sit at my right hand until I put thine enemies beneath thy feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. Wow. Amen. Pray with me. We rejoice, Lord, that you are a speaking God, that you have not left us to uh, read the tea leaves of the created realm, but you have spoken through special revelation, that is, your prophets and apostles in the holy scriptures. It is a sure word. It is in. Um, it is a perfect word, and it is needed full, food, rather, for our souls. Please feed us afresh this morning, Lord Jesus, you who are the great Word of God, the great Prophet of the Church. We ask in your name, Amen. All right, kids, I have a question for you. Um, All all, all eyes up here, kids. So my question is this. What role do I have in this church, in this congregation? I hope all of you know that answer. I am actually a pastor. We actually have four pastors, technically. Each elder is, is a pastor in one sense. But I'm kind of more often referred to as the pastor. Right, because I'm a teaching elder. But uh, as a pastor, what are what are some of the things that are necessary? Do you think for someone to be a pastor? Do you know? You might uh, you don't have to shout it out, but can you think of maybe some scriptures that you've heard that uh, that talk about what a pastor needs to be, uh, a person needs to be in order to be a pastor? Well, I'll give you a few. I'll give you a few representative um, examples of things. A pastor needs to be a Christian. And by the way, there are lots of pastors that aren't. Uh, They're in churches that you don't want to be in. Uh, But lots of pastors are not Christians. But a pastor must be a Christian, to be a legitimate pastor. He needs to be a he. He needs to be a male. There is no such thing as women pastors, legitimately. He needs to be, shall we say, well-behaved most of the time. I'll just... I won't go into more detail, but he needs to be well behaved, generally speaking. And, and pretty mature. Mature, that means grown up, uh, as a Christian, a pretty grown up acting Christian. And there's some other things as well, but my, my point is, children, that for me, or anyone, to be a pastor, uh, the pastor that God explains, uh, elder pastor in the, in the Bible, there are certain, um, things that are necessary in order for me uh, to fulfill my role as a pastor and my responsibilities as a pastor. Certain things have to be true of me, right? And that applies to other uh, jobs as well. I just happen to use pastor as an example. But just as uh, there's certain things that have to be true of me if I'm going to be a pastor or anyone else uh, to fulfill my role as a pastor and my responsibilities, the same is true, children, of the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world, certain things had to be true of him in order to be the Savior of the world of all believers down through the ages. Certain things had to be true of the Mediator or the Redeemer, other words for Savior, uh, uh, very closely related to the word Savior. Certain things had to be true of Jesus in order for him to save you and me. Okay, So what I'm going to tell you this morning, what God's going to tell you through this passage as I I unpack it for you, is one of the most crucial things that Jesus had to be in order to save you and to save me from our sins and to get us safely home to heaven. So you listen uh, as, uh, as we unpack this. And this will be probably familiar to most of you children, but even if you've heard it before, some of the truths that I'm going to relay to you, uh, you need to be reminded of it. Because as sinners, we tend to forget things that we need to remember, um, including things about Jesus. So, uh, just a reminder of the background here. um, uh, Jesus is, over the course of his public ministry, he's been teaching a lot. He's been um, preaching a lot to a lot of different groups of people. And, there are multitudes of people who have encountered Jesus up to this point in his ministry. Remember, he's in the, the last week of his life now. And there are, there are multitudes of people who have encountered him and heard him who had, had, who had no problem whatsoever recognizing that Jesus was a man. It was pretty obvious that Jesus was a man, a human being. Uh, he had the shape of one. Uh, he sounded like one. He looked like one. Uh, all the things that make somebody human Jesus had, and it wasn't a problem for the folks to immediately draw that conclusion. This is a guy, it's not an angel. This is a human being, it's not an angel, for example, just for example. However, while many, well, everybody knew he was a man and understood that uh, readily, the vast majority, I would say, Certainly, the majority, and I would say probably the vast majority of the people that encountered Jesus during the course of his public ministry and even prior to that point in time, had failed to recognize the fact that that Jesus was at the same time he was a man was also much more than a man, and was indeed the Lord God Himself, Yahweh, uh, is the the name that is often applied to him. We're not sure that's how the the Old Testament letters were pronounced, but it's a good guess, Yahweh, and we're going we're to use that. The vast majority didn't figure that out. Or certainly majority of, uh, of the crowds that he spoke to. And the religious leaders, Israel's religious leaders, were particularly unwilling, and it was a matter of willingness, uh, being unwilling, unwilling to acknowledge Jesus' divinity. And... As a whole, they were unwilling to acknowledge Jesus' divinity and his worthiness of honor and glory and worship because he was divine. From a human standpoint, uh, much of this blindness, not just amongst the religious uh, leaders, but also among the average Jews who turned out for Jesus' uh, sermons and the like, uh, from a human standpoint, much of this blindness with respect to Jesus' divinity Can be attributed to the Jews' misconceptions about what the Messiah would be like and what would be his purpose in coming to the world. Okay? Now, ultimately, they were blinded because they wanted to be blind, but in terms of, from a human standpoint, uh, misconceptions had arisen regarding the Messiah over the century, preceding centuries. Um, due to unbiblical readings of the Old Testament or just indifference uh, to things that were taught about the Messiah in the Old Testament that leads me to the two points that are, are come from this passage that have to do with that uh, misconcept those misconceptions first is in this passage Jesus dispels misconceptions about the Messiah's nature and therefore about his own nature because he was the messiah and then Jesus also in this passage dispels misconceptions about the Messiah's mission. So he dispels misconception about the Messiah's nature and also about the Messiah's mission. So we're going to take those one at a time. First of all, he dispels misconceptions about the Messiah's nature. What were some of those common misconceptions about the Messiah's nature? Well, um, the vast majority of Jews, it would appear in his day, uh, believed that uh, the Messiah would be uh, nothing more than an extraordinary man. A very gifted man, a man whose kingly rule, because he would be a king, and they knew that, would, uh, God would greatly bless that, that rule of the Messiah. They believed that. Uh, but they believed he would be a man through, uh, through whom God would fulfill his promises, as they understood those promises, to the nation of Israel, but he would be a man. Many thought that there were some that read their Bibles and uh, knew their uh, knew their uh, scriptures well enough that they understood. No, it's he's going to be more than a man. Uh, but many did not. Many also uh, believed that uh, so, so that he'd be a, he'd be a, a human prophet. Uh, he would be a prophet, like uh, unto some of the, the great prophets of the Old Testament, Jeremiah and Elijah and, uh, and Moses and so on. They believed that he would be a human king, uh, uh, like David, his forefather, um, uh, sitting on Israel's throne, um, uh, presiding over the nation and uh, subduing all her enemies uh, to himself. So that was the conception that was very common in Jesus' day regarding the Messiah uh, from their teachers. He would be a human prophet and king. But, of course, we know that careful reading of the Old Testament made it clear that he would be much more than merely a human uh, uh, king and prophet. So, Jesus seeks about, goes about seeking to dispel, and does in fact dispel, uh, misconceptions about the Messiah's nature. We read here uh, in verse 41 that um, Matthew tells us that the Pharisees are gathered around. We don't learn that from Mark's account, but we do here uh, in uh, Matthew's account. And so they're gathered around him at this point. Um, And Jesus initiates a conversation with them at this point with two questions. first one is found in verse 42, and the second one is found in verse 43. He first of all says, What do you think about the Messiah? What do you think about the Christ? Christ is uh, merely... same thing has same meaning as Messiah. What do you think about the Christ, whose son or descendant? Son means descendant, by the way. Uh, the Hebrew word uh, for uh, son is the same word for descendant, and there are plenty of places where the word is intentional is used, and the meaning is intentionally blurred. Where it can, uh, I won't say it's blurred, but it has both meanings. Uh, at times. And other times it only has one meaning. It means the actual physical son, the next generation down. But there are many times when it means a descendant somewhere uh, in the future of a particular individual, like the, the patriarchs, for example. So, whose son is he? Jesus asked them. Now, the Old Testament scriptures uh, clearly uh, taught that the coming Messiah would be a descendant of Israel's greatest king King David uh, Isaiah uh, 9 verses uh, 6 and 7 teaches this that well-known passage that we often hear quoted uh, uh, um, at, at Christmas time that time of year and also in Jeremiah chapter 33 verses uh, 14 through 17 I, uh, that's a passage we don't look at as often so I'm going to go ahead and read that to you Isaiah excuse me Jeremiah uh, 33. Uh, starting in verse 14, reading through verse 17. Uh, Here's one of those passages that makes it clear. Uh, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days Judah shall be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she shall be called, meaning Jerusalem, the Lord is our righteousness. And there, note, the Lord there is the branch of David, uh, the righteous branch of David. Then verse 17, For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. So this is one of the scriptures, and again, there are uh, Isaiah 9, and I believe there may maybe some others as well. Uh, but the point is, the, the, the Pharisees knew these verses, and they understood Messiah is going to be a descendant of David. And so they say to uh, Jesus in response to his question, they answer, the son of David. He's going to be the son of David, or the, a descendant of David. And then, um, so after he is, they've answered that first question, he poses then the second question verse 43. Then, if he's the son of David, as you gentlemen say, then he says, then how does David in the Spirit, meaning writing in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, how does David in the Spirit call him, the Messiah, Lord? Saying, and then he quotes Psalm, that's famous Messianic Psalm, Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord... And it, by the way, at the top of that psalm, it says a uh, psalm of David, uh, which, by the way, is one of the examples of where uh, where the um, superscription in the psalm is clearly uh, historical ac- historically accurate, and I believe most of the superscriptions, I believe all of them are, actually. At any rate... Here we know for sure it was David wrote it, because Jesus says so, and, and Dave, Jesus doesn't make mistakes. So he says, Then how does, uh, how does uh, David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand Til I make thine enemies, um, uh, till I put thine enemies under thy feet. And he quotes that psalm. He says, How is that the case, gentlemen? He's presenting essentially a dilemma to them. On the one hand, you just said he's a descendant of David. Generationally, Some and, and, and by this point, how many years had passed? A thousand, roughly, since David's day. So they're waiting on a descendant, not Solomon, because he's pushing daisies. Um, they're waiting on a descendant of, of David. And so... He says, "How does he call him his his own descendant from his own loins, as it were? How does he call him his Lord, the Lord?" And then, you know, the Lord said to, and David says, "My Lord." The Lord Yahweh says to, "My Lord." How is that possible, gentlemen? When most Jews, including uh, the Pharisees, thought of this messianic descendant of David, again they conceived of him as merely. Uh, a biological descendant, a physical uh, descendant of King David, one, and that he would be nothing more than that. Now again, careful search of the Old Testament scriptures revealed otherwise, but many folks were not that well instructed, it appears, and conceived him as just uh, uh, an exalted man. However, as Jesus now points out, King David himself speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Psalm 110, referred to the Messiah as his Lord. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord. And Jesus' point is, gentlemen, this has very profound implications that you need to understand. And, of course, that we need to understand because the Lord made sure this conversation was in here. What are some of those implications? First, when David penned these words in Psalm 110, a thousand years before Jesus' day, he was speaking of the Messiah, as he was penning that psalm, as his then current Lord. Got that? Then current. He is my Lord now, in other words, when he's writing in roughly a thousand B.C. And the Messiah wouldn't actually be born in time and space in history for another thousand years. And yet, at the time of that psalm's composition, the Messiah was David's Lord right then. That's only possible, only possible if his Lord, his Messiah, was and is the eternal God, Yahweh himself. It's the only way that statement makes any sense whatsoever. And Jesus is making that point. Secondly, another profound implication of the words of uh, King Solomon uh, through the inspiration of the Spirit is that for the king of Israel, uh, King David, to call one of his descendants his lord would be utterly inappropriate. Utterly inappropriate if the individual he is referring to was merely going to be a man. A mere Man, and nothing more. Why Why is that inappropriate? Because no patriarch of a family in the ancient Near East, and I dare say uh, at any time in in history, uh, would ever refer to a descendant of his as his Lord. It's a sign of, at the very least, enormous respect and deference. It's more than that. But it's certainly that. And... um, It was younger generations, and this is still true today, although many young people don't uh, take it to heart. Younger generations are supposed to revere and show respect for their older um, forefathers, their parents and their grandparents. God requires children to do that. It's not supposed to be the other way around. I mean, don't get me wrong. We parents are to respect our children as... Uh, as people made in the image of God, and we are to uh, speak with them respectfully. And I don't always get that right. I don't know about the rest of you dads and moms. But I'm working on it. Anyway, the point is, you are sub- the, the patriarchs are to be revered. They are not the ones to do the revering, especially in the ancient Near East. And yet that's what David is doing in his psalm about his own descendant who hadn't yet appeared on the world stage and wasn't going to for another thousand years. And this is something, by the way, that his opponents here, well-instructed Pharisees, would have understood. Okay, And then thirdly, a third implication, no mere man, no matter how extraordinarily, extraordinary or gifted, no mere man is entitled to the homage, dominion, authority and majesty ascribed to the Messiah by the Holy Spirit in Psalm 110 I'm not just talking about the first verse of it now I'm talking the whole psalm if you read it and I, I won't bother to take time right now but go back and read it that the the dignity the majesty the the deference the um, the uh, su- uh, subjugation that is called for uh, for the Messiah in that psalm, No mere man deserves. And the worship also. No mere man deserves that. And so, the only conclusion, the only reasonable conclusion that can be drawn from David's words in Psalm 110, the whole psalm taken together, but especially uh, verse 1, is that the Messiah, the then-future Messiah, would not only have to be a human he would also have to be Yahweh. It's airtight. That divine human Messiah of whom David was writing in Psalm 110 was the very one to whom the Pharisees were now speaking. Jesus regularly. <coughs> and his three-year public ministry regularly allowed messianic titles to be applied to him without objection. We just saw in, a few weeks ago in the uh, triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Son of David. Clear messianic title. No, no doubt about it. It means descendant of David, the, the promised one. Um, Son of man. I've just been reading through Daniel. Um, and and also Psalm eighty, the, those descriptions are to the Messiah. They're clear messianic titles, no doubt about it. And Jesus regularly allowed himself to be allowed those terms to be applied to him, never offering an objection to their use by others about him or or by himself. I obviously wouldn't object to what he said himself. So, And the fact that Jesus allowed all those, messia- those Messianic titles to be regularly and repeatedly applied to him, by the way, some re- examples of that are Mark 2, verses 9 and 10, and uh, verses 27 and 28 for the, t- the title uh, Son of Man, and Son of David, Matthew 21, verses 15 and 16. That's the triumphal entry, I believe. But there are other examples as well. At any rate no one was more aware of the implications of Jesus' refusal to repudiate such messianic titles than the religious leaders themselves. They understood. He's claiming to be the Messiah. He is identifying himself as 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 Israel's long-promised Messiah, as the seed of the woman, as the branch of David, the root of Jesse, and many other titles that were applied to him in the Old Testament, including Mighty God, by the way. And so these men understood what was going on. They knew. And so by proclaiming the divinity of the Messiah, using David's words in verse 44, repeating David's words uh, from Psalm 110 in verse 44, by using David's um, prophecy uh, and proclaiming the Messiah's divinity with that prophecy, Jesus was clearly proclaiming his own divinity to them. A point that was surely not missed. And of course, he's done this on several different occasions prior to this point in time. So, Jesus clears up that misconception. Jesus, the Messiah is the God man. God was standing in front of him. Yahweh. But Jesus also dispels misconceptions about Messiah's mission. What were some of those common misconceptions? Well, I already mentioned mentioned some. Not only that he would be just merely a very gifted man, extraordinary man with exceptional talents and exceptionally blessed by God and a king and so on and prophet, but also he was going to be, as understood by most Jews in in Jesus' day, a political military leader. He was going to be a king who was a warrior king over the nation of Israel who would as a warrior king subdue all of their enemies we're going to, have to stomp on the romans and anybody else that gets in our way when the messiah comes was the mentality of the commonly the common misconception that was probably most probably the vast majority of Jews had with respect to the concept their concept of the messiah he would be like david was a warrior Slay in the enemies with a sword. And this was a commonly held view not only among the populace, but also among the religious elite to whom Jesus is now speaking. And so he dispels conceptions about the mission um, also here in this passage. According to the prophecy, uh, David's uh, psalm, Psalm 110, according to this prophecy, Messiah's role would not be to restore the Davidic kingdom, the earthly Davidic kingdom, a kingdom on earth. Or uh, would not be to restore the political or national sovereignty of Israel as a nation. Remember, it was a nation church under the old covenant. He wasn't coming to reset that situation up, which is what they most of them thought was the case. No, rather than simply enlarging upon the earthly kingdom that was King David's a thousand years prior, the Messiah would establish a very different kind of kingdom. Now, ultimately, it would involve the earth, the new heavens and the new earth, in its final uh, uh, expression, shall we say. But no, this was going to be a kingdom of Jesus uh, uh, that David points out in Psalm 110, a kingdom whose throne would be situated in heaven, not in Jerusalem, on the Temple Mount, but in heaven, at the right hand of God the Father. Now we know that isn't a literal right hand; it means the place uh, enthroned in a, a place of highest majesty and greatest preeminence and honor. That's what that means. It's not a literal chair. But that was the kingdom of which David spoke—a heavenly, um, a heavenly kingdom that was that was ruled from heaven, whose ruler would be in heaven. It was a kingdom that Messiah would receive from God, and it was a kingdom that would be uh, of which David's earthly kingdom was merely a shadow. Foreshadowing the final and the real kingdom. The kingdom of David's greater son. It was to be a kingdom. The Messiah would only, and we learn this uh, not from the Old Testament so much, although, no, I should take that back. We do learn it from the Old Testament as well. Um, uh, but it's clarified in the new. It would be a kingdom that the Messiah would receive that he would only receive and inherit after he had died and risen from the dead and ascended into heaven bodily. Why? Why did? Why was all that necessary before Jesus was to uh, inherit the messianic kingdom um, described? In, in the both the Old and New Testament, well, the reason is because Jesus exaltation and his enthronement in heaven as the messianic king was completely dependent on his undergoing death, resurrection on earth, on behalf of his people. And why? Because God decreed it. That's why. That's that's the ultimate reason. God decreed it. Jesus had to suffer first on behalf of us. By his de- eternal decree, the exaltation of Jesus as the divine human mediator was inextricably tied to his humiliation and death and, yes, resurrection from the dead and ascension. But this is a point, by the way, this point of the exaltation of Jesus uh, had to be preceded by his humiliation is um, made by Paul... Uh, in Romans chapter one verse four, I'll start in, in verse one of Romans uh, chapter one. Paul, a bond of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, whom he promised he God promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his Son, who was born of a descent, born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, and now get this. Who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. By the resurrection from the dead. The dead. Get that? Catch that? It had to be. It was, it was, it's what completed his Messiahship was his vicarious. Uh, life lived uh, on our behalf and his vicarious death. That is to say, in our place, in the believer's place, the elect believer, or the elect person. And with that phrase in verse four of, of, of Romans, he says, "Who was declared the Son of God." That phrase uh, there, Paul is not implying by that phrase. That Jesus only became the Son of God, um, that he only became the Son of God when he was raised from the dead. That is not what that verse there is saying, or any other verse. I just, interestingly, uh, happened to be listening yesterday. I don't regularly listen to Jimmy Swagger on the radio, uh, but every once in a while I do. I know, I know. Um, every once in a while I do. Because I want to hear what those guys are saying. I need to know it. Okay. Now, without uh, talking about all of Jimmy's um, life and beliefs, he said something very clearly, and I almost, I almost, my hand almost went through the radio to grab and go, "What are you saying?" Because <laughs> he said yesterday, um, but well, let me let me back up. So. Um, so it's, this this verse is not implying that Jesus only became the Son of God when uh, when he was raised from the dead. That view, by the way, of Jesus becoming the Son of God after, only when he's raised from the dead is called adoptionism. It was an ancient heresy, also called monarchianism. And what it taught was that Jesus became the Messiah at his baptism, and then he was finally adopted as God's son after his death and resurrection. That's called monarchianism, or adoptionism, after that uh, uh, adoption of Jesus as the, by the Father as his son, only after his death and resurrection. And Swaggart and his panel articulated that view. Not all of them. There, fortunately, there was some pushback. So a couple of guys on. There's a panel discussion. A couple of guys. No, I don't. I don't. I don't think that's right. No, I do. I do. I think Jesus was only uh, became the Son of God. Yes, he was divine all his life, but he or all, all of eternity passed. But he only became the Son uh, after the resurrection. And Jimmy was one of the ones that said, "Yeah, I agree with that." Uh, essentially, he was kind of waffling a little bit, but you could tell he was leaning on that. That's heresy. Colossians chapter one verses fifteen through seventeen. It's it's about. I'll read it. Jesus has just been described as the Son in the preceding verse, and I am going to get to my point by the way here, uh, eventually. And this is just one verse, but so in verses uh, verse thirteen, uh, he that is the Father uh, delivered us from the domain of darkness. Colossians 1, 13. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. And he, and the he there, is the Son. The Son. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That doesn't mean he was created, by the way. For by him, that is, by the Son, uh, by him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him, by the Son, and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he's referencing the Son there. The, hymn, the pronouns all apply to the Son. He's been the Son forever. Yes, he's God the Son. For eternity. For eternity. Okay, so rather than um, what, 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 so so God has decreed that this has to be the case. This has to be the order. The exaltation of the Messiah must be preceded by his humiliation and death. So what what Paul is referring to, getting back to tying tying up that loose end, what Paul is referring to there in Romans uh, one is he is the Greek word is better translated um, than he was declared the son it would be better to translate that word he was installed or he was appointed and what that means is it's a reference to his state as the messianic King his enthronement as the messianic King not his not his ontological being as the son but his his uh, being uh, the Son of God with power. There there we go. That that phrase is to be taken together. That is a new thing that only happens after his death, resurrection, and ascension. The Messianic Kingdom didn't exist in the same way that it does now before Jesus died. And that's what Paul is referring to there. He's not referring to Jesus began uh, was adopted as the Son by the Father when he rose from the dead. So don't... I, I realize I'm... Uh, beating on that pretty hard, but it's important. So, Christ was always the Son of God. Always has been God the Son. But as a result of his resurrection, he was endued with, uh, with new kingly power and authority as the risen and enthroned Messiah. A new phase, if you will, of his lordship and glory as the God-man. And it was a new phase that was only entered into as a result of uh, his atoning death, and then subsequent resurrection uh, for God's people. And Jesus' portrayal of the messianic kingdom differed radically from the puny concept that was espoused by the Jews of his day, that it was merely a political thing, or largely a political thing, that involved beating back the Romans and, and increasing the turf that belonged to Israel. Which was their concept. And by the way, it's radically different from the puny conception that is popular, so popular in the evangelical world in our day. Jesus came to do much more than merely reestablish an earthly kingdom with Jerusalem as its capital. He came to establish an infinitely glorious and exalted kingdom that uh, for the time being... Uh, is, is, uh, is, um, headquartered in heaven and will one day, when heaven and earth are reunited, will be headquartered in the entire cosmos. But that kingdom of which David, to which David alluded and of which Christ often spoke was a kingdom whose dominion encompasses all of creation. He is now ruling. Uh, he is exalted now, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. Now. And folks, I, I want to suggest to you that this is really important to be thinking about right now in our current situation in in this country. We need to remember that Jesus is in charge as we uh, anticipate the outcome of the, the elections. We need to anticipate that Jesus is in charge as we see riots in the streets of our cities and mayhem. We need to see Jesus and realize that Jesus is in charge uh, even uh, as we see uh, the church increasingly persecuted in this country and laws being made to uh, to uh, punish Christians for Christian beliefs. I'm not saying that... Is going to keep going in that direction. I hope and I pray and you should too that it won't. But the fact is, if it does, in some sense, it's okay. I want to be careful. I say in some sense because it's not going to be pleasant if we end up, uh, uh, in a country that's more like the, you, uh, Russia is right now where Christians are persecuted and you have a dictatorship. Um, that won't be fun. If it comes, we need to pray that it won't. But the fact is, it's okay. Because God is our king. Jesus is our king. He is ruling. He is not uh, a an absentee uh, lord and king. Given the fact that that Jesus is now ruling in that way over an infinitely glorious kingdom, that he is progressively gaining ground, and it's spiritual ground, not terra firma, as he conquers all his and our enemies through either conversion or destruction. The fact that that's the kingdom over which Jesus is reigning now is why, if that, given that that is the case, why would Jesus want to return to earth to establish a temporal Earthly kingdom on a piece of real estate at the east end of the Mediterranean Sea, as some of our Christian brethren would have us believe. It just doesn't make sense. We serve an awesome king who's got everything under his control. He's orchestrating the whole thing. That includes whoever ends up in the White House at the end of this year. Don't look don't worry about who's in the White House. I mean, yeah, you can be up to date on it and you know, do your part to determine that. But we're in good hands, folks. And we're just foreigners in a strange land passing through. That's that's what this life is for the Christian. Now, if you're not a Christian, then you got some problems. Um, and that's putting it uh, exceedingly mildly. Uh, you are not... Um, you're in rebellion against Christ who is the king uh, and who has demanded your allegiance and you are giving allegiance not to him but to yourself and ultimately, whether you realize it or not to Satan you're a child of the devil if you're not a Christian uh, there is no uh, neutral ground between being a child of the devil or a child of God you're a child of the devil and uh, you're, you're God is yourself and uh that true, was true of me before I was converted, true of everybody, every Christian, before they were converted. If you remain in that state of rebellion, and that's what it is against God, uh, you will be punished forevermore um, for your rebellion, for your sin. And that's what uh, sin Sin is rebellion, rebellion is sin. Uh, God will pour out his wrath upon you in hell for eternity. And you will deserve it. We all deserve it, but you will get it unless you flee to Christ, in which case Jesus will have taken your punishment that you deserve. Uh, And he will also have lived a perfect life uh, under God's law that you need credited to you uh, so that God can see you as righteous rather than guilty, which is what you now are seen as by him. But you need to flee to Christ uh, unreservedly, with no conditions, not saying, well, God, I'll serve you, Jesus, I'll love you, and I'll trust you, if... You let me have this activity that I like over here in my life. Or if I can uh, do my own thing over here. No, you can't do that. You have to submit unreservedly to Jesus as your Savior and your Lord or you will die and go to hell for eternity. Flee to Christ. For those of you that have, remember that your Savior is your God and you are in very very good hands and we do not need to get excited um, unduly excited about the troubles in this world Um, because it's all part of the divine plan and God's plan is a good plan for you for the Church, for the world. Um, and we just need to believe that and act like we believe it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, that you are a good God and that's, that's so understating is the case, Lord. You are indescribably good, holy, morally spotless, pure, utterly pure. We rejoice, Lord, that you are uh, not like every other, uh, uh, all the false gods are uh, that men have created that are made in their own image, uh, gods that are capricious and petty and wimpy uh, and uh, dark. We thank you that you are none of those things and that we, by your grace, know that. Thank you so much for opening our eyes to the truth, those of us who are Christians. Please help us, Lord, those of us who are your children, to to rest in your sovereignty and Your and your r- righteous reign, to know that we are in good hands, and Lord, to not be unduly flustered by the things that we see going on around us that would otherwise greatly trouble us. Please help us to put things in perspective, To remember that we are just passing through, we're aliens, passing through a strange land uh, on our way to home, which is before your throne. And Lord, if there's anyone listening today who does not know Jesus as his or her only hope of being forgiven and being reconciled to you, would you please impress upon that person now their desperate need of Jesus and give him faith to lay hold of Jesus as his Savior and Lord. We pray in his name. Amen. Let's close. (coughs) Receive now God's blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all, both now and forevermore. Amen.